And now, O Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would bless the preaching and the studying of your word. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, that we would have understanding and conviction. We remember, O Lord, that your word is inerrant, that it is inspired, that it is infallible, and that it is efficient to do your work in us and sufficient for every need that we have. So we pray, O Lord, use your word to accomplish your work in us. Make us more like Christ as we study your word. And we pray for our children, for our children both inside and outside of the womb. We pray, O God, that you would save them. We pray that in due time, in your time, your perfect time, that you would open their eyes and that the seeds of the gospel that are planted early in their lives now would bear a rich harvest in your time. We pray these things for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14 today. And uh, we'll see that as Jesus continues to speak words of comfort to his disciples, that uh, we come to a kind of confusing passage today. This is probably the most difficult passage of the book. Uh, one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, and I say that because there is no historical consensus on this verse, this passage. Uh, there are Christians who differ greatly in how they have understood these verses, uh, and, and we'll see that as, as we go through it today, but we'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. But let me just say this, when it comes to things that don't have a consensus, there is room for that in the Christian faith. There are areas in which there's no room for disagreement, things such as the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, the resurrection of Christ, uh, the atonement of, of Christ, you know, those things, there's no room to differ on those types of things. But then there are Areas where there's a lot of room to differ. Uh, one of the more uh, common questions that I get asked uh, as a pastor, it's actually a question that I was commonly asked, and you probably get commonly asked. Uh, I was asked it before I was a pastor. The question that I'm referring to goes something like this. What's your position on the end times? Uh, that's one of those questions that people love to throw around. And uh, yeah, now once upon a time, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on that subject, on eschatology. That's what it's called in, in, in a systematic theology book. It's called eschatology, end times. And I used to think that I had a pretty good grasp of eschatology, but as I started exploring and considering the arguments and the views of those who had different views than I held on end times, my own views started to change. I at least started to have a lot less confidence in my position than I once had. And, and that's not a bad thing necessarily when you're talking about a subject in which there is room to disagree. Uh, now, while I once upon a time would have answered uh, the question about my end times position with a very forthright answer, today, uh, those of you know, uh, those of you who have asked me, you, you know how I answer this. When somebody asks me my question or my position on the end times, I proceed with a lot of caution. 
I proceed with a lot of apprehension. My standard answer is now to say something like, when it comes to the end times, I'm agnostic. Which is to say that I'm not completely settled on my position. I see different positions that have very strong, very good arguments. But one of the reasons I say this, and, and, I, and one of the reasons I'll point this out to people, is because you can take two very faithful Bible preachers, Bible scholars. Both of them have done all their homework on this subject. Both of them have studied this subject from Genesis to Revelation. Both of them have looked at the original languages. Both of them have considered all the arguments for and against uh, this position or that position. And they come up with two very different conclusions. And it's not because one is more intelligent than the other. It's not because one is more faithful than the other. They simply arrived at different conclusions after surveying the same data. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. People like me, it makes uncomfortable. I'm a very black and white person, and I think we like things to be black and white. Uh, We like things to be laid out and clear as day for us. And on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, those doctrines in which there is no room to disagree, I would say that those issues are black and white in Scripture, and those issues are made clear as day in Scripture. But there's no end times position that's clearly spelled out in Scripture, contrary to what some might say, that the universal church, the the, the church has always affirmed. And here's what I tell people. I, I, I might lean toward one position on the end times. I, I do lean toward one position on the end times. But what I will definitively say is what the church has creed. It's this, said throughout the ages. Uh, and it's what's written in the Apostles' Creed. It's this. Uh, I, I believe that, quote, Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. End quote. I think every Christian should be able to affirm that statement. Jesus is coming again, and He will judge the living and the dead when He does. That much is made crystal clear and incontrovertible in Scripture, I think. But part of Christian maturity is realizing that sometimes it's okay to disagree and realizing what those areas are where there's room for disagreement. And to do so, to disagree charitably on subjects that are not fundamental or foundational to the Christian faith. Uh, Another one of those issues is uh, soteriology. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, Sometimes you'll see a Calvinist say, uh, you know, that's a, that's a totally false gospel that the Arminians believe. Sometimes you'll see Arminians say, oh, that's a totally false gospel that the Calvinists believe. And it pains me to see people making that mistake because we don't have a different gospel. Calvinists and Arminians do not have a different gospel. The, the distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism is in how we believe the gospel works, not what the gospel is. And a person doesn't need to understand exactly how the gospel works in order to be saved. So it's not an issue that divides us, or it's not an issue that should divide us. 
But today we come to a verse that would have to be in my list of the top five most difficult verses to understand. Uh, And again, it's because there's not a clear consensus in the commentaries for this passage. It's a verse that that we all know, probably, uh, gets abused and misused by prosperity or health and wealth teachers, which is a false gospel, by the way. Uh, it's a verse that solid Christians go, go one way with, and, and some solid Christians go a totally different way with. Uh, we're going to see that two of the very best theologians from the past 200 years, A.W. Pink and J.C. Ryle, uh, they both had very different understandings of this passage. But commenting on this verse, even the, the great, the, the highly respected R.C. Sproul said this. He said that this is, quote, A statement from Jesus that I have struggled all my life to understand. I think I know what he meant, but I'm not sure. End quote. Now, when somebody like R.C. Sproul says that, it's very wise for us to step back and say, okay, maybe I should take the same position. Maybe I should agree with him, and I I personally will. I'll stand with R.C. on this one, and I'll say I think I understand this passage, but it's not a hill worth dying on, and I think that you will understand this passage by the time we're done today as well. But all of this is to say two, two things. Uh, number one, you might disagree with my understanding of this verse, and I am perfectly comfortable and perfectly okay with that. But number two, our different understandings of this verse should not necessarily cause division. Now, if you, if you take this verse and you go the health and wealth, prosperity, gospel way, there's division. But with most Christians, there's no, no reason for division here. Rather, this is a passage that requires us to use a high degree of caution and charity toward those who disagree with us. In an age in which our social media accounts very easily become just echo chambers, where all we have showing up in our feed is people and organizations that agree with everything that we say. And the second somebody disagrees with us, what do we do? We, well, hopefully we don't. Uh, but people unfollow and do all kinds of stuff when there's even the smallest disagreement. Uh, and you know, this is cancel culture time, Right. But Scripture gives us room to reach different conclusions sometimes. And like um, issues and positions related to end times, this is one of those times in which there is room to disagree. But the point of this passage that we will be looking at today might sound like blasphemy. This might sound like heresy, but it seems clear to me that this is the point that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand when he spoke these words. The point of this passage as I understand it, and as I think you will understand it, is that if we truly believe in Jesus, and if we pray in his name, we will do greater works than even Jesus. And and when I listen to myself say that, I think I can't believe I'm saying that. It sounds so wrong. And yet I think it is what Jesus was saying in this passage. And I think you'll agree before we're done looking at this passage today. If we truly believe in Jesus and if we pray in His name, we will do even greater works than Jesus did. So in this chapter, Jesus is speaking words of comfort to the disciples. That's what He's doing throughout chapter 14. And in doing so... 
We've already seen he's made the promise that he's going to prepare a place to bring those who believe in him, that where he is, they may be also. This was the promise of heaven, of course. And Thomas uh, was confused, and so he asked, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus assured Thomas that he did know the way because Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Philip then spoke up saying, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. And Jesus responded there by pointing out that because the Father is in Him and He is in the Father, to see and and understand Him, to see and understand Jesus, is to see and understand the Father. Jesus now continues making a promise that will really blow your minds if you think about it. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says this, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Jesus starts off here by saying two things that I I have to admit I, I struggle to wrap my mind around completely. First, he says that whoever believes in him will do the same works that he did, And secondly, that whoever believes in Him will do greater works than He did. Do you struggle to get your mind around that? Is that hard for you to imagine? It is for me. Uh, But I concur with Richard Phillips who says this in his commentary. He says, quote, This would rightly seem too good to be true were it not for the explanation that Jesus gave, an explanation that changes everything in the Christian life, end quote. And what is that explanation? It's that last little clause that we see right there at the end of the verse. Because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. That's how all this is possible. It happens because Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. So so this promise hinges on that explanation. This promise that we will do the same works as Jesus and even greater works than Jesus hinges on that explanation. It explains how those two things are even possible. If Jesus did not go to the Father, then those who believe in Him wouldn't be able to do the works that He did, and they won't do greater works than He did. The reason His people are able to do the same and greater works than Him, Jesus says, is because... He went to the Father. Now I think it's probably an understatement to say that questions. One verse raises a lot of questions. A lot of very important questions. Jesus has already answered how this will be possible because He went to the Father. But the question then becomes, what kind of works is Jesus even referring to? And this is where people go in different directions. Some would say that Jesus was referring to His miracles, the the supernatural things that He did throughout His ministry. That at least seems possible, right? Uh, Now, now just to give you a hint as to where I land in my understanding of this, just to give you a little bit of a, a, a spoiler, I'd say that it's possible that that's what Jesus was talking about. 
but it's unlikely that that's what Jesus was talking about. Possible, but unlikely. Maybe he meant miracles, but I don't think so. Uh, This is actually the view that that Jesus meant miracles. That's the view that A.W. Pink took. And A.W. Pink is a solid, solid theologian, was a solid theologian, great commentator. But he wrote this. He said, quote, The works of, uh, of which Christ here spake were his miraculous works, end quote. And I'd say that if we're being honest with the text, however, this creates some really serious problems because Jesus did some pretty incredible works, uh, some pretty incredible miracles. Uh, John tells us later on in this gospel, toward the end, as, as we're reaching the end, he tells us that Jesus did so many signs and wonders, so many miracles, that it would take all the paper in the world to record them. In other words, there's no way of recording all the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, but he did tell us about some of his miracles, some of Jesus' miracles, right? Uh, walking on water, uh, calming a raging storm, uh, feeding probably somewhere between twenty and 25,000 people with two fish and five barley loaves. Uh, he healed the blind, r- raising the dead back to life several days after their death, uh, restoring the health of, uh, of people who were near him, restoring the health of people who were nowhere near him, r- raising himself back to life from death. Casting demons out of people. And the list just goes on and on and on. Jesus did all of these works. It's a long and impressive list. Let me ask this though. Did the disciples, Peter, James, John, all those guys, did they ever do something as miraculous, as amazing as feeding 5,000 men and their families? Not that we're told of. And that that seems like something that Luke would have told us in Acts if it had happened. Did the disciples ever walk on water? No. Again, not that we know of. Were they ever caught in a storm, a raging storm? Yeah, we do read about that in Acts. Did somebody stand up and calm the storm? No. No, they didn't. Hopefully you get the point. The book of Acts does tell us about what the disciples who became the apostles did in in doing miracles and they did do some miracles but the book of acts never never records the apostles performing miracles that are even close to being on the same level as many or maybe even most of jesus's miracles position that aw paying biggest critique and the most important critique Uh, I can of the position that A.W. Pink and many others have taken in interpreting what Jesus uh, was saying here by simply saying this, if that's what Jesus meant, if Jesus meant miracles, then what he promised didn't happen. If Jesus promised that his disciples and, and those who came after them and anyone throughout history going forward who believes in him will do greater works than him, and those works are miracles, then Jesus' promise was left unfulfilled. That is the strongest critique I have of this position, and it is a powerful and unassailable critique. It's just one of those things we don't see happening, we've never seen happening. But this is really only the beginning of the issues that I have with this understanding. Perhaps equally significant is the fact that we don't see Christians today doing the same works or greater than what Jesus did in performing signs and and miracles. 
Now, I do have to acknowledge that this is where A.W. Pink parts ways with many who take the understanding that Jesus meant miracles. He does think that, he did think that Jesus meant miracles, but A.W. Pink believed that the 11 uh, disciples who received this promise, who were there uh, to, to hear this promise in the upper room, would be the only ones to do the same works as Jesus and greater. He correctly notes that, quote, there is no Christian on earth today who can do the miracles which Christ did. Cleanse the leper, give sight to the blind, raise the dead, end quote. But then he goes on to say the promise was limited to those whom our Lord was addressing. The problem with that is that that is not what Jesus said at all. And if we apply this principle that only the people to whom Jesus is, uh, is speaking receive this promise, if we apply that principle to other promises, we're left with the false conclusion that when Jesus said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life in John 3.16, it only applies to Nicodemus. Does that only apply to Nicodemus? No. No, it doesn't. And in fact, the wording is very similar there to what Jesus says in the passage that we're looking at today, here in verse 12. Or when Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Does that only apply to the Samaritan woman? No. It applies to anyone and everyone who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 99.9% of the time, I agree wholeheartedly with A.W. Pink and what he writes, but I'm convinced here that he was very mistaken in his understanding of Jesus' promise here in John chapter 14, verse 12. There are just too many problems that he doesn't address in his own position. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me... The works that I do, He will do also. The words He, who, are translated elsewhere as whoever. And it can be rightly translated whoever here. In fact, uh, that's what you'll see if you're following along in the ESV or the NIV. Uh, The NASB uh, 2020 translation says, the one who believes in me. These are all legitimate translations. So this is certainly not referring only to the disciples. Now some will get around that by teaching that the promise does refer to miracles and doesn't just refer to the disciples by arguing that the miracles of Jesus can be replicated and greater today, but we don't see it happen because our faith isn't strong enough. That's where you're getting into prosperity waters. Uh, They would say, we we don't heal the sick and the blind and the lame because our faith is too weak, in other words. The problem with that view is that that is not what Jesus said. He didn't say, he who believes in me with strong enough faith will be able to do what I do. If that were the case, then if we were going to do greater works than Jesus did, we would have to have greater faith than Jesus had, greater belief than Jesus had, which is... Ridiculous. And that is blasphemy, by the way. No, Jesus made this promise to everyone who believes in Him. Those of weak faith, those of strong faith, and everything in between. And the reality is, we have weeks where our faith covers the whole spectrum. 
This leads us to what I believe is a near certain conclusion. Near certain. And that's this. When Jesus said, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also, and greater works than these He will do, He was not referring to miracles. Not visual or auditory miracles. So what was Jesus talking about here? What was He referring to? What kind of works did He mean? That's the question that we have to ask. What kind of works is, are, are these that Jesus is talking about? And to answer that question, we have to ask another question. And that is this. What does God consider to be great? I'll start by saying this. God doesn't consider the visually spectacular to be great necessarily. So what does He consider to be great and necessarily so? I think the answer to that can be seen in the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 10. There we read of how He sent the disciples out on a mission to preach and He gave them the temporary power to perform miracles. And when they returned, they were celebrating the power that they had to work these miracles. When they returned, they were celebrating. They're rejoicing. We read in verses 17-20 to in Luke chapter 10, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, and here's where we get to the really important part, nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But, He says, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, the fact that they believed was a greater miracle than what they had just done. In other words, the fact that they have received salvation is more amazing and is greater and more worthy of rejoicing over than visually spectacular miracles. There are works that heaven rejoices over, friends. And those are works that are greater than visually spectacular miracles. And I'm referring, of course, to works that lead to the salvation of souls. That's what heaven rejoices over. Those are the works that God considers to be the greatest. This is J.C. Ryle's view. Another really solid theologian. He writes this. He says, quote, There is no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul. How's that for contrary? That's some contrary thinking. We don't tend to think of it being so spectacular. We tend to think of salvation as being somewhat ordinary. But only if we don't have an understanding of exactly what is happening a dead person being raised to life by grace through faith. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's what heaven rejoices over. Now, now let's apply the same test to, to J.C. Ryle's view that we applied to A.W. Pink's view. Uh, do we see the apostles uh, doing great works in Acts if we define great works this way? And the answer is yes. Yes, we do. We see Peter preaching his first sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 hard-hearted people having their hearts melt 
as they're saved on that day. We see this happening repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. Someone will preach a sermon or share the gospel, and those who are appointed to salvation are converted on the spot. See, when a person believes in Jesus, that is supernatural. It's supernatural. It's it's impossible without the working of God. When a person believes in Christ, they become a disciple. And there's a task that's given to every single disciple of Christ, even to this day. And that is to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. That involves preaching the Gospel. That involves evangelism. It involves the disciples sitting under the preaching of the Word of God regularly. This work is referred to as, of course, the Great Commission. That's what we call it. It's the Great Commission. That's what you find at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The Great Commission. It's not a small commission. It's not a minor commission. It's a Great Commission. It's the people of God taking the message of salvation, taking the message of the Gospel around the world to the four corners of the earth. And this is a responsibility that is handed off from generation to generation. It's a responsibility of every single Christian who has ever walked or ever will. And in this sense, in this sense only, we can truly say that the church, the the, the universal church, uh, has done the works of Christ and has done even greater works than Christ did during His time on earth. Do you want to see a miracle? Don't go to a revival. Don't go to a big tent. Go to where the Gospel is preached. Or preach the Gospel to somebody yourself. That's how you see a miracle. But we have to see why this is the case. It's because, Jesus says, He went to the Father. Because I go to the Father, He says. It's because we have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, offering intercessory prayers on behalf of His sheep, that this miracle of salvation, of of a sinner coming from death to life, it's the reason that that happens. It's happening. It happens because as Jesus says in giving the Great Commission, He has all authority in heaven and on earth. John Calvin puts it this way in explaining this verse. He says, This is the reason why the disciples would do greater things than Christ Himself. It is because when He has entered into the possession of His kingdom, He will more fully demonstrate His power from heaven. I think it's critical that we understand this, friends. That if the work that Christ gave us to do was done by our own power, if He didn't go to the Father leaving us to do this by ourselves, our evangelism, our preaching of the Gospel would be fruitless. It would fail. Nothing would happen. But is there any work that we can do for the kingdom of God for which we can take full credit? Absolutely not. Rather, we do the works of Christ and greater only because Christ's work didn't stop at His ascension. His work continues through His people. 
Consider what Luke says at the beginning of his book of Acts, the book of Acts. He writes this. He says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. The key word there is began. It didn't stop when he ascended into heaven. His earthly ministry, as recorded by Luke, was only the beginning of his works. The book of Acts records what he continued to do through his people, through the apostles. And history itself attests to what Christ has done through the ages and even continues to do today, again, through his people. And how are we to see the fulfillment of this promise that whoever believes in Him will do the same works and greater than He Himself did? How are we supposed to see the fulfillment of this promise? I'd say it starts with what we see here in verse 12. It starts with He who or or whoever believes in Me. If we don't believe in Him, We can't expect to see this promise applied to us. If you haven't believed in Jesus, you're as able to be used in leading people to salvation as a blind person is in in leading other blind people or a dead person in leading dead people. Now this, this is where it starts. It starts with you believing savingly in Jesus Christ. But remember that the lips exist to reveal what fills the heart. If faith in Christ fills your heart, what are your lips going to do? You're going to talk about Jesus. You're going to talk about Jesus. You'll evangelize. You'll preach the gospel if that's what fills your heart. You'll you'll speak frequently of Christ. That's what we do with things that we love, with things that fill our hearts. We talk about it. We tell our friends about it. We tell our families about it. Look at Yelp. Why does Yelp exist? It exists because we like to tell other people about the things that we like or, or don't like. So if love for Christ fills your heart, you will speak frequently of Christ. But your lips will also speak frequently to Christ. And that's what follows. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Jesus continues saying, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, that doesn't make it any easier, does it? There's a lot of confusion about these verses too. Prayer... Specifically, prayer that is made in Jesus' name is the means by which we are enabled to do the same works that Jesus did and even greater. Prayer is the means by which we are enabled to do the same works that Jesus did and even greater. What we accomplish for the kingdom is only made possible by Christ answering our prayers and petitions in the affirmative. And context is so important here, isn't it? If you just yank these verses out of context and let them sit by themselves, you have no idea of what came before or what comes after. 
can be very confusing and lead to some very wrong understandings of what Jesus is saying here. It's not difficult to find people who don't understand these words. It's not difficult to find people who have abused these words and misused these words and others like it. If anything, it's more difficult to find people who haven't abused these verses. The ones who do abuse it are the ones that you'll find on TV on huge stages wearing luxurious clothing with bleached white teeth and a nice clean smile. Uh, that's definitely not me. Um, they're the ones uh, that are preaching the, the name it and claim it type of theology or blab it and grab it if you prefer. But you probably know the sort of person I'm talking about. They think that if they just tack on the words in Jesus' name to the end of their personal wish list, that Jesus has the obligation to give them anything and everything that their sinful hearts desire, as if He's some kind of cosmic genie in a bottle, and that He's summoned by those words. No, reading these verses in context will prevent us from understanding His words to be taken that way. Let me make this much clearer. Jesus is not promising to be your personal genie in a bottle. He's not promising to grant you anything and everything, whatever crazy desire your heart might have. Rather, context forces us to see that the words, whoever, uh, whatever you ask in My name, are related to doing the works of Christ and greater. So what we should see here is that there's a connection between prayer and evangelism. Prayer and advancing God's kingdom through the preaching of the Gospel. Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, which means to pray urgently, uh, or with longing. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. Pray. Pray that somebody will preach the gospel to the lost, is what he was saying there. I love what uh, Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs said. He said this He said, quote, Converse much with God. Be often with God, bear near to Him, and that will make you shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. End quote. Which kind of makes me wonder, has there ever been a generation more crooked and more perverse than the one we're surrounded by right now? The answer is probably yes, but that's beside the point. The point is that prayer enables us to do what we've been called to do. And we have been called to advance the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. Prayer is what makes it effective. Do you know anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus? Do you have any friends? Do you have any co-workers? Do you have any family members who do not believe savingly in Him? What should you be doing for them? Praying. Praying. And more specifically, praying for them in Jesus' name. Now, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? 
Alexander McLaren writes this. He says, quote, People think that they have fulfilled the condition, which in a mechanical and external manner, they say as a formula at the end of petitions that have been all stuffed full of self-will and selfishness, for Christ's name, amen, and then they wonder why they do not get them answered. End quote. Now, this is really important for us to understand, friends, because this, praying in the name of Jesus, this is the condition upon which a positive or affirmative answer to our prayers and petitions is set. It's a conditional promise that He will answer our prayers when we pray in His name. We have to see that. It's conditional. To speak or to act in someone's name means to speak or act either on that person's behalf or in the interests of that person. Now, we don't have the authority to to speak our own words on behalf of Jesus. He's given us His Word. His Word is sufficient. But we do have the ability to speak in Jesus' interests and to pray in Jesus' interests. So, to pray in Jesus' name means what? It means to pray in accordance with His will. What's His will? Well, now we've really opened a can of worms, haven't we? His will is the will of God. Jesus' will is the same will that God has. What's God's will? That's why we have our Bibles. So that we can know God's will. You, You don't get God's will outside of the Bible. It's all contained in the Bible. It reveals His will. It reveals His heart. It reveals His mind. It reveals His nature. It reveals His will for His people. Which is exactly why the Bible alone is sufficient and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. And so with that much said, praying in Jesus' name cannot mean praying for something that serves our own personal, selfish interests. It's not a prayer for our will to be done, but for His will to be done. Now, before you you go in the wrong direction here, that doesn't mean that you can never pray for something that you want. Of course you can pray for something that you want. Uh, Jesus, we we know that we can do that because Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane where He prayed, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is a personal request that Jesus had of the Father. We too can make personal prayers and petitions and requests to God. Just make sure that you're willing to include the same words that Jesus did. If you are willing. And then he goes on to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. That is a prayer that is answered in the affirmative every single time. Your will be done. You pray that, you will get an affirmative answer, guaranteed. It's an acknowledgement of the complete sovereignty of God. God's will is always done. Now, somebody might say, if God's will is always done and sin exists, doesn't that mean that God wills sin? Well, I'm not saying that He desires sin, but there are at least two things to say in response to a question like that. First of all, 
The question isn't if God desires sin. Of course he doesn't. The question is, does he allow it? And the answer is yes. But the second thing to say here is that he only allows it insofar as it accomplishes his own purposes. And we don't always understand how evil things and and sin and, and things like that, how those work to accomplish his purposes, but he's promised that they do. We're reminded of Joseph, whose brothers sinned badly, badly against him, selling him as a slave to, to be brought down to Egypt where he would face many troubles over the course of his lifetime. And yet, despite his troubles, despite a life of one hardship after another, after another, God raised him up to become Pharaoh's right-hand man, the second most powerful man in the world at that time. And when famine struck the land that his father Isaac and his brothers were living in, Joseph had the power and the authority to bring them into Egypt where they were safe and where food and water were abundant and where their families would all multiply for several generations. And in the end, Joseph would say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What a wonderful and comforting perspective that is. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Pray often, friends, that God's will be done. And know that it will be. But pray often also for the work that you do to advance the kingdom of God. And every single one of us is called to do that. Not only called, but equipped. We have some kind of gift. Everybody has some kind of gift. All Christians have some gifting for the sake of serving the body, and the body's purpose is to advance the kingdom. So pray often as you work to advance the kingdom of God. By doing so, you will be reminded of your total and complete dependence on God's sovereign power and provision. You'll be reminded that what you do is for His glory and not for yours. You'll be reminded that you are coming to God the Father only through the Mediator who stands between you and God. The Mediator who shed His blood for the remission of sins for everyone who believes on Him. And you'll be reminded that if our prayers are answered, it's because He went to the Father. He went to the Father in order to offer intercessory prayers among many, many other things. While we don't always know exactly what God's will is in every single circumstance, we do know that His will is to advance the kingdom through this dark world. And that His will is to do so through a means that He has ordained. That means is not doing good works. Although there is a place for doing good works. That means is through preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. We know that's His will because that's what He's ordained. We know that's His will because that's why God sent Christ to ransom and redeem His people from the penalty and from the power of sin. That's all His will. And it's all for His glory. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes this. He says, quote, To pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
is to seek an endorsement of our request and to bring into consideration that what we ask is consistent with the nature and purposes of our Savior. End quote. So praying in Jesus' name means praying what He would pray. Praying what He would pray. What this means is that we should never expect selfish or sinful prayers to be answered in the affirmative. And what grace it is that they're not. It's only for the best. It's only because God loves us so greatly that He doesn't answer many of our prayers in the affirmative. What a great thing it is to, to, to learn to thank God for unanswered prayers or for, for prayers that He doesn't answer in the affirmative. For not giving us what we want sometimes. I can't tell you how many times throughout my life I've prayed for something. Maybe even prayed multiple times for something only to see that prayer not answered and to reach a point somewhere down the road where I look back and I thank God for not answering that prayer and realize, wow, I was really foolish and had no idea what I was asking for and things have all turned out better because God didn't answer that prayer in the affirmative. What grace that God sometimes doesn't answer our, prayer in our prayers in the affirmative. So what kinds of prayers can we expect to have answered in the affirmative? I think there's an answer to that. I think Scripture gives us an answer to this. And it's this. Whenever you pray for what Jesus would be praying for, you can expect an affirmative answer. How do you know what Jesus would be praying for? By knowing Him. By knowing Him. Just like I would know what my wife would pray for, I know a lot of things that my wife would pray for. And just like you probably know what your spouse would pray for. Why? Because you know them. Similarly, if, if we know Jesus, if we know his character, his desires, the things that he loves, the things that he hates, we know what he would be praying. Whatever you pray in the name of Jesus, you must desire to bring glory to the Father. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. James Montgomery Boyce adds uh, one more quote that I'll give you, one comment that I think you'll find encouraging. He says this, he says, quote, This is a new thought for many people, for we are so filled with the idea that prayer is getting something from God that we rarely consider that prayer is actually a means by which God gets something from us. End quote. Wow. What could God ever get from us? What do we have to give God? Glory, for one thing. Glory, but more than that, how about willful, loving obedience? In the next verse, which we'll cover next time, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ has called us to do works as great and greater than his. You'd better believe that that will require complete surrender and reliance upon him. It requires prayer with him. It requires regular fellowship through prayer with him. We would be foolish to think otherwise. And prayer is what reminds us of how much we rely on his sovereign power and provision. He's eager his people to you. 
He's eager to, to listen to your requests. He's faithful to hear His people. Ask Him. Ask Him to work through you. Ask Him to be glorified through you. And know that when you are obedient, when you obey His commands, two things will happen. First of all, you'll be a faithful witness that stands out like a light in the darkness. And secondly, God will answer that prayer. He will be glorified by your obedience. If you truly believe in Christ, friends, God is able to do more with your life than you have ever imagined. Be active, therefore, in working to advance the kingdom of God by walking in a manner worthy of your calling and by faithfully sharing the gospel. God can accomplish far more through your faithful witness than than you have ever imagined. And if you don't get what you prayed for, trust anyway. Trust anyway. Trust that His will is being done. Even if it's not being done the way you thought it should be or would be. Jesus' promise here is that if we believe in Him, and if we ask in His name, we will do the same works that He did and even greater. Jesus' promise here is that as we believe in Him and as we pray for God's will to be done, our prayers will be as powerful, as fruitful, and as efficient as His own. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we confess that these verses almost leave us feeling stupefied. We thank You for these promises, and we pray, O Lord, that You would grant us understanding, and not only understanding, but a willingness to believe. To believe these promises and to go forth preaching the Word, praying as we go for those to whom we preach. O Lord, we pray for a bountiful harvest, not for our glory, not for our name, not for our reputation, not for our anything, but for Your glory, in order that Christ would be glorified through the preaching of Your Word. And not only that Christ would be glorified, but that the Father would also be glorified in the Son. Thank You for these promises. Give us wisdom and courage to go forth and to preach the Gospel. Give us boldness. Give us a love for the lost that would compel us to reach out and to risk things like rejection and ridicule for the glory of Christ. May that be our greatest desire by Your work in us, making us more and more like Jesus. All for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen.